Did you know one in five Americans live with a mental health problem? <laughs> that means unless you live in a cave, you know someone personally dealing with these issues. So join us and our special guests as we answer your questions, share real stories, and work to pull the curtain back on how stigma impacts our everyday lives and our communities. We believe that making a real impact happens best with candid conversations, laughter, and tears. We are your hosts, Jennifer Teague and Josh Moore, and this is Impact Stigma. Good morning, evening, or afternoon. Good morning, or evening, or afternoon, everybody. And hi, Josh. Well, hello. How are you? <laughs> How are you? Doing pretty good. It's nasty outside. I know. I was about to tell everybody, if you hear some loud bangs, it is just, just thunder. thunder. Yeah. Just thunder. Mm-hmm. We were hearing it earlier, and I thought, oh, no, we're recording today. It's going to sound like a construction zone in here, but it's not. Plus, we have a few people in our office that are getting new cubicles. Yeah, it's banging. new furniture, and people are moving stuff up and down the hall. Oh, yeah. So... We apologize. If you do hear it. Hopefully yes. you won't, though. Absolutely. So it's kind of a special month for you, isn't it? Yeah. You turned 90. Josh! Yep. You're not allowed to say that. 90 is a big number. <laughs> Just so you know, I'm going to be 45, everybody, not 90. But evidently, my son thinks that that's halfway to death. He yeah. actually said, that's you're halfway mis- to death, Mom. And I was yeah. like, really? Thanks, Deason. That's how I, I think it's a guy thing. That's how yeah. most guys look at it. Well, yeah. I'm halfway done. Yeah. I just thought, it's really stressing me out, and I thought that I'd be okay, but I've driven everyone in my whole family completely crazy because um, I've never been like, oh, please do something for my birthday. Mm -hmm. I did one year, and that was probably like my 40th or something, but I've basically told everybody at least seven times, probably because I'm so depressed about being 45. I just want to have something fun that day, not think about it. So I've yeah. told everybody, please do something for my birthday. That's all I'm going to say. What, what day is it? March 28th. March 28th. We're going to have 90 balloons in your office. <laughs> I cannot wait. Yep. I have not I have not experienced. I've had a birthday while I've been here, but mm-hmm. I haven't had a frontier health. You're getting really old, and it's a big, important birthday birthday thing here yet. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I know one of our, I know Janet had a, her 50th, and they decorated her office. It was really cute. So, yeah. you know. 50. She's 100 years old now. Why is everything doubled for you? That's just what it is. Oh, my goodness. Okay. All right. Well, we are now in the second season for our award-winning podcast, Impact Stigma. And this is the fourth episode, and I am happy to share that we are quickly approaching 700 listeners, you guys. And we are now heard in 19 states across the country. That is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. We just can't thank you guys enough to everyone for your continued support. Today, we have a very blessed opportunity to share a very special story with all of our listeners from the perspective of what addiction is like for those affected by the person with the addiction. So I know some of you all have heard me before talk about my mom and her, she's she's recovered. So it's basically from my point of view, this is a parent. So it's going to be really great. We're going to share this important conversation with our special guest who drove all the way here from um, Knoxville, Tennessee to be with us today. Brenda Seals is the author of Sundown, Sun Up, a story she wrote about how she battled her son's addiction, found hope, and survived. We are thrilled to have her, so please help me have a big warm welcome for Brenda Seals. Welcome to Impact Stigma. Thank you. I appreciate you take, letting me come and, and join with you today. Oh, we're excited yeah. to have you. We really are. So, as always... We strive for candid, open, and sometimes even humorous conversations here on Impact Stigma. So please remember, 
This podcast is never intended to be a substitute for professional advice, formal diagnosis, or treatment for mental and behavioral health issues. If you do need further assistance or have questions, please visit the Frontier Health website at FrontierHealth.org for more information. If you or someone you love has an urgent mental health need, please call 877-928-9062 and our 24-7 Frontier Health Crisis Team will be there to help you. If you, your child, or someone you know is in danger of suicide, please go to the nearest emergency room or call 911. All right, Brenda. So one of the things we like to do to warm you up, get you used to the set, and let people know a little bit more about you is to ask you some questions. So one of our one of my favorite questions to ask because you can tell a lot about somebody by the food they eat, not what <laughs> style of food. You yeah, know. Josh's is a, Josh's questions are a surprise, yeah. and mine aren't. So you know, what is your favorite food you love to eat that you just crave? Like a like for me, it could be a burger or a mine would be cheeseburgers with French fries. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So what do you put on your cheeseburger? Everything except pickles. Everything except for pickles. Yeah, All I'm right. not a, I'm not a pickle eater. That's okay. okay. I understand that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not either. I just, mine's cheese, bacon, mustard, ketchup. That's it. Oh, okay. So I, yeah. I, don't, I don't like anything good for you. He doesn't <laughs> like vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's me. That's me too, because my second favorite is anything Italian. Oh, yeah, that's me too. But I've been that's on full of di- carbs. Yep. Absolutely. My I've nemesis. Both of our nemesis, I guess. For a while. Yeah, Josh is doing fantastic. I can't, I can't even tell you guys how great he is. He's Down doing great. 22 pounds. That's wow. Yeah. More than two babies. I know. Yeah. Starting on my third. Last time we were on, he said, I've lost two babies. And I was like, <laughs> okay. <Yep. laughs> so my question's a little bit different this time. I love quotes. And quotes can really bring out so many feelings and thoughts, emotions, and ideas. So what is one of your favorite quotes and why? You will meet two kinds of people in this world. Ones that build you up and ones that tear you down. You will eventually thank them both. I love that. That's a good quote. That's definitely true. That's a great perspective. I like that a lot. Well, because both of them make you stronger. Yeah. Yeah. No matter which one it is, they're going to make you a stronger person. It's a good quote to remind you to look at things even when they're hard, you know. No matter what kind of person it is, you don't have to. You can find an opportunity to learn in either kind of person. Right. That's good. I like that. All right. So I have one more question. Okay. (laughs) Do you have a favorite television series that you binge watch or you always look forward to seeing the next episode yellowstone yellowstone okay yeah i've never seen that oh it's on i need that oh i need something to it's watch it's on paramount but i watch it on amazon prime oh i didn't know it was on amazon prime yeah it's okay. on three it's had three seasons it's getting ready to start the fourth season okay so why do you like it oh it's a good that's a good question um it has uh kevin costner in it he's a Owns a big, huge ranch in Montana, yeah. and and the Indians are trying to take it away from him. And <laughs> he's uh, good in those kind of roles. Oh, it, it's yeah. just awesome. It, I mean, it's just it's good. It's so good. It's bad. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. I'm gonna check it out. Yeah, I'll let you know what I think. Okay. How about that? All right. I have one last question. If you could turn back time and talk to your 18 year old self, what would you tell her? I would tell her, don't rush through life. You're gonna love more than once. Don't stress about things you don't need to stress about and try to be a better person today than you were yesterday. I love that answer. That's really, really good advice. I think uh, it would be wonderful if we could trans, I don't know, travel back in time and speak to our 18-year-old selves and give them advice without them knowing that it's us. And then hopefully it'll like 
magically help us in the future. (laughs) Don't you wish you knew then what you know now? Yes, all Mm -hmm. the time, all the time. Yes. So I have always, this is one of my favorite parts that we do here. I always love hearing um, our guests' answers. That was really fun. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, I wanted to take a moment to share the series of interesting events that led to us sitting here having this conversation. So it all started when Brenda's generous friend, Tammy, make sure I got her name right, Tammy, correct? Okay. Decided to make a generous donation and mail a copy of your book to Frontier Health Facility Magnolia Ridge, where your son Matthew actually finished his program. Um, the book and donation were received, but the donation was mailed back. And I know that's strange. Maybe I think they told me they didn't know what to do with it, which is great because, frankly, I'm excited. I just couldn't be more thankful that it ended up working out the way it did or we wouldn't have you here. So... That led Tammy's associate to call our corporate office, and then the corporate office lady that answers the phone was like, well, maybe I'll send her to Jennifer. So she sent her to my office, and we had this wonderful, terrific conversation. And then I was like, oh, my goodness, we may have a a bigger opportunity here. How great would it be if we could all kind of get together and have this conversation? So that's kind of what we had a Zoom meeting, and you are delightful. It was so fun, and you're so sweet, and I just really radiated with the story, so I was really excited to bring you here, and um, Josh and I were excited to have you as a as our guest on Impact Sigma. Thank you. You you're know, welcome. Tammy, actually, I think it got sent back twice, and she called me, and she said, I've never known a place where you're trying to give them money, <laughs> and they keep sending it back. Well, maybe they were trying to be super honest. Who yeah. knows? There's well, no I telling. think they didn't know where to apply it to. Right. Tammy probably wasn't real clear, mm-hmm. but I guess she thought when she sent the book, y'all would know what to do I'm with just going to go out on a limb and say it was a God thing because yes. you needed to be here to help our listeners and share your story and make that, that financial gift so great for Magnolia Ridge and then this huge opportunity for us to share your story with all of our listeners so I think it's a it's definitely a God thing and I'm really glad it worked out the way it did so me too I do want to begin by asking if you could just share a little bit about who you are and a little bit of background and then we're going to talk about your book well thank you I remember when my publisher when I started writing the book the publisher asked me the same thing because I just started with the story of mm-hmm. Matthew's addiction and she goes no you have to let people know a little bit about you before you delve into that right Actually, I am just um, a regular person from a middle-class family. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. My father was an alcoholic, and not only was he an alcoholic, but he was an abusive alcoholic. And we kept secrets. I think that's where I first learned to keep secrets. And I kept secrets for my whole life because we didn't talk about what happened in our house. I was embarrassed and ashamed back then, and so that's really kind of my my upbringing is that I just kind of kept secrets and lived with an alcoholic father and and my mother was abused and so I did that until I was 18 and then I knew I had to get out of the house. Right. Sharing your life with the world is no easy thing and I can only imagine considering what you've experienced that it was not something you took on lightly. Would you share with us how and why you decided to write a book about your experience? When my son was in his addiction, I wanted to read everything I possibly could to understand addiction. And so I went to every bookstore I could find in every city I was in. I Googled, I searched everywhere for books on addiction because I wanted to know everything I could possibly know more so than anybody else. So I went to the bookstores and looked for books that were written by parents because that's what I was going through. Right. Mm-hmm. And I could not find any, well, actually, I found two books that were written by parents. One was written by a mother, and at the end of the book, her daughter had died. 
The other book was written by a father, and at the end of the book, his son was still in his drug addiction. Okay. That gave me no hope. Right. And that's what I was looking for. I was looking for something that, at the end of the story, that their child had gotten well and that they could recover. And so I felt hopelessness when I read these books. And so when I went through it with Matthew, I knew that I had to write a book that would give parents hope that their child could get well. Yeah. So one thing we'd love to hear is about your son, Matthew, and who he was before his fight with substance abuse. You know, can you share a little bit of the beginning of your book with us? Matthew was the last person that you would ever expect to use drugs. And I know a lot of people probably think that and say that, but I can tell you he was the all-American boy next door. He excelled in sports. Mm -hmm. He excelled in his academics. He was very popular in school. He was part of the cool kids, I guess you could call them. He had lots of friends, and we used to call him the social director because everybody would call our house to find out what was going on. And this was before cell phones, and so everybody had to use the phone. And so he attended church regularly. He went to Bible studies. He went to Young Life. He was fun. He was funny. (laughs) And he smiled all the time. He He was just so much fun. Right. And that was his personality. All right, first of all, you sent the book to me. I have my own personal autographed copy, and I read your book. It's a really great, quick, empathetic, exciting, understanding, relatable read, in my opinion. And I can truly say it speaks 100% accurately about how it actually feels to love someone dealing with addiction. And I'm just personally so grateful to have a resource that is so full of hope, like you said you wanted to provide. Um, So I want to share with our listeners, and hopefully I told you earlier that I won't cry. If I do, I apologize. It really is hard to read someone else's words about something so hard, so I'll do the best I can. just want to read this excerpt when your son told you and stood in front of you about his drug addiction for the very first time. So it says, and you wrote, I remember like it was yesterday, but I can't adequately articulate the impact his statement had on me. Stunned, mad, confused, heartbroken, and terrified. Matthew explained that he started drinking alcohol and smoking marijuana during his senior year of high school. Then a friend introduced him to Oxycontin, and shortly after that, things got out of his control. When he was standing before me at my office desk, I didn't believe what he was telling me. Couldn't be true. He had been hiding his problem in plain sight. He was a functioning addict. A stranger was standing in front of me. A stranger who possessed my son's body. Here I go. (laughs) A stranger who promised his parents he wouldn't touch drugs again. A stranger who stole from from our family. I had no idea who I was dealing with. What was that moment like for you? I hate to even still remember that moment, but I didn't know who this person was that was standing before me. It was like somebody had taken over my son, and I I couldn't breathe. I was just, um, like like the book says, I I was just shocked. I didn't believe him at first. I thought, what? You know, he's got to be lying to me. Yeah. Because I didn't, I didn't understand drug addiction. I didn't know anybody who had a child in drug addiction. Right. So I didn't even know where it came from. And I was just, you could have blown me over with a feather. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. So, Brenda, can you share with us, you know, what happened after he confessed to his addiction with you? Yeah, I was lost and I had no idea what to do. I I had never dealt with something so awful before, and I thought, well, can you stop? That's the first question I asked him was, can Mm -hmm. you stop? And he said, I think all I have to do is detox, and if I detox, I'll be fine. 
And so I even asked him if he needed to go to rehab, and he said no. He said, I can do this. I can handle it. Okay. So we decided that we would let him detox in our house. And at the time, I had no idea how dangerous that was. Mm. I didn't know what could happen, what could go wrong. Right. So he detoxed, and he was so, so sick. I've never seen a person that sick. And he was sick for probably five or six days. Wow. And uh, we had to tell the I had two daughters. We told them that he had the flu Mm -hmm. so that they wouldn't ask questions or wonder why he was there upstairs so sick. Just trying to keep it another secret. Yeah, another secret. Exactly. And so after he detoxed, he we thought he was okay. We thought, okay, it's over. We're Mm -hmm. done. That's how ignorant, I guess you could say, I was about drug addiction. Right. That makes sense, though. I think that's a misconception a lot of people have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I really do. I did. I thought my mom's going to quit drinking, so everything's fine now. I I was little, though, but, you know, that's how I saw it. Yeah. So that's relatable. Oh. Understood. But it certainly was not over. No. I feel you. (laughs) (laughs) So in your chapter, Addiction Doesn't Discriminate, you talk about the shame associated with addiction to um, illegal drugs being so much more stigmatized than even alcoholism, and you reference it as the dirty disease. Can you share more about this and how this affected you as Matthew's mom? Well, just the word addict creates a lot of stigma and shame. Mm -hmm. I can remember when I first heard uh, drug addiction and drug addicts, the picture that you, that comes to your mind, and they used to be referred to as junkies, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you can just picture this person and what this person looks like. And so I was so ashamed thinking that that's what people were going to picture my son as, that he was this junkie. I hate the word junkie. Yeah. There's no, you know, a person is not a piece of junk. No. And I did not want people to think of my son that way. Right. Because he was a good person. And just the stigma was more than I could hardly stand. You know, if you're addicted to cigarettes, you're a smoker. If you're addicted to alcohol, you're an alcoholic. If you're addicted to food, you're an overeater. Mm-hmm. But if you're, a, if you're addicted to drugs, you're an addict. And I just think the word is a terrible word. I, maybe they need to come up with something else besides drug addict. That people that associate addiction, that it has to create this terrible stigma and shame. Polly Jessen told us, I'm a person recovering from substance use disorder. Yeah. And I thought that was really That's great. much better. And the, yeah, it actually creates the understanding that it puts that connection with this is a disease you know, not a, when we say it all, we've said it more, more than once on here when we're talking about this topic. It's not a, mor- it's not a moral issue. It's not morality problem. You know, right. it's an illness. It is an illness. So. And it's, but it's a disease that creates no sympathy. Yeah. You know, if somebody has lung cancer or any other kind of cancers or health issues due to the other addictions, People sympathize with that mm-hmm. because those are all legal. Mm-hmm. And, and you get this sympathy, and people will bring you casseroles. Yeah. You know, I said yeah. that when my son was a drug addict, nobody brought me a casserole. No. You know, they tend to run or, you know, just kind of hide when they see you because they don't want to talk about it. You mentioned in your book also, just to segue a second, that you felt like, you know, people even associated your father, who was an alcoholic, as an alcoholic, which was unfortunate. And your take on that was, no, it was way more than just unfortunate. Oh, yeah. That was the dirtiest disease I've ever seen. Right. You know, because he beat my mother yeah. when he got drunk. There was nothing pretty about that. No. 
So, I mean, we, we, we definitely need to watch how we say it and, and understand that, it, that how you say something definitely affects someone for sure. Right, right. So. All right, growing up in a home with addiction, you develop all sorts of ways to cope that are toxic to everyone. Um, I wanted to share something that you wrote about enabling that really spoke to me. You know, I'm going to read it. Hold on, let me get to it. <laughs> I am messing with a book here, you guys. If you love someone who is out of control and you find yourself taking responsibility for the person's actions, you are an enabler. You lose control too. The worst part is that the enabler is usually more affected and more upset than the one being enabled. So that being said, I love that excerpt. Can you share with our listeners the difference between helping and enabling and how did you enable Matthew? Enabling an, ad- an addict is doing things for them that they should be doing for themselves. You know, like giving them money, providing them with a place to live. And that's a particularly hard one for a lot of people, especially mothers, yeah. to not allow them to stay in their home and do drugs. But if you make it comfortable for a drug addict, why would they ever change? Yeah. You know, you can't make their life so comfortable that they just keep doing what they were doing. As a matter of fact, when Matthew got well, he told me, he said, Mom, if you had kept doing what you were doing, which was enabling, Mm -hmm. I would have kept doing what I was doing, which was using drugs. Oh, wow. So I knew that what I had done was right, even though it was the hardest thing I had ever done, was to stop enabling him. Now, when you stop enabling, it doesn't mean you stop loving them. Right. Because you still love them through what they're going through. You know, I would text him every day and say, I love you. I wouldn't hear back from him a lot of days. Or I would say, are you okay? Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't text me back. And it just wow, broke my heart. Wow, that's going to be so hard. Oh, it was so hard. Oh, my you, goodness. you automatically think the worst thing. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And so every once in a while, and I would say, I love you. Are you okay? And he would write, he would just text back, I'm okay. And that would just like, my heart would just burst right open. Yeah. Because that's all I wanted to hear was that he was okay. Now, he wasn't okay. But... He was alive. He was alive. And that's all I wanted to know was that he was alive. Yeah. Because I, I figured as long as he had a breath, I had hope. We had hope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Parents always want the best for our kids. And because of this, we tend to want to fix what has been broken in their lives. So what was your biggest struggle as a mom dealing with your son's addiction? Oh, I struggled in so many ways. I struggled not to enable him <laughs> because it would have just been easy to hand him money. But I I struggled with not enabling. I I struggled with what people thought about me as a mom. Yeah. Because you worry that they're going to somehow judge you, you know. And I I went through those emotions like, what did I do wrong? What could I have done better? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't about me. You know, it was never about me. And he even said, Mom, this is not, it has has nothing to do with you. Yeah. But I struggled with with that as a mom, I struggled with not being able to fix him. That was a big one for me because that's what moms do. (laughs) You know, from the time your children are born, you fix, you fix them. You know, if they fall down, you know, and you, they get up, you kiss their knee. And dads too. I mean, well, that's true. And I, and I should preface all this with, I'm only speaking from a mother's point of view, but a father, a father has the same emotions, the same feelings, but um, you fix them. And then this is something you can't fix. And that was hard for me to, to understand uh, because a mother's love, you think a mother's love can fix, can fix your child. Yeah. But this, this 
was not fixable. I remember feeling like my a daughter's love could fix my mom, you know, and saying, like, if you loved me, you know, you wouldn't do this. And she, you know, we finally got around to this, the same exact thing, which is my love for you is no is not associated with my disease. I Absolutely. love you. I have a disease, you know, and that was something that really helped us heal a lot. So, you know, yeah. thank you for well, sharing. I thought I was protecting him from himself. Yeah, of course. You know, but I wasn't protecting him at all. I was protecting the addict. Yeah. I love that. You're exactly right. You were. And that's bing, 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 for sure. That's definitely an aha moment. I hope our listeners really catch on to that because that is the person, you know, that is interacting with you. And it looks like your son, walks like your son, talks like your son. But when the addict, when someone's in active addiction, it's not who they are. It's the disease that's talking. Well, I called it the beast when my when Matthew was going through this. I referred to his drug addiction as the beast, and I realized that I was just only I, at that point I was helping the beast kill my son. Wow, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I was trying to save him, but the beast was taking him from me. That's a really good way to look at it. I think that's I think that's very helpful. So it kind of helps you separate addiction from your son, so you don't really most importantly yell, scream, fuss, look at that person, and you know you can separate those things so you can treat the the addiction as a disease as opposed to, you know, focusing on the person. It's their problem. It's right. their fault. You wrote about your recovery in your book as well. And I would love for you to share with our listeners how you realized you also needed help, where you found it, and what that part of your journey looked like, and who was the biggest inspiration along your way. I realized that I was a mother that was leading two lives. I was crying myself to sleep. I was paralyzed by fear of a phone call, my cell phone became my worst enemy and my best friend. And I would lay at night with it between the pillow and my head, hoping or not hoping, one of the two, for a phone call. Because if I got a phone call, it could mean good news or it could be bad news. Wow, yeah. And so I was really paralyzed by my phone. I had to ask myself finally, are you sick and tired of being sick and tired, which is what Addicts have to ask themselves. In order to recover, you have to be sick and tired of being sick and tired. Mm -hmm. And so I had to ask myself that. And I had to break my addiction to his addiction. Wow. Matthew had dug this hole for himself. And every time I enabled him, I was handing him a shovel to dig a deeper hole. And so the hole became so deep. And I had crawled right down in that hole with him, trying to save him. And I knew that I might not could save him, but I could save myself. And I had to crawl out of that hole. Mm -hmm. And so I started going to um, celebrate recovery in Knoxville and hearing other stories and seeing how this was all going to play out if I didn't do something differently with myself. And God answered my prayers, and he brought me right out of that hole. That's awesome. That is awesome. Was there anybody in particular that, while you were there that really inspired you or kind of helped you and you can say thank you to? I had uh, a lot of inspiration from my be- one of my best friends. She prayed for me as much as I prayed for him. And so I have her to thank. And also at Celebrate Recovery, the leader there was Gil Smith. And he has an awesome story to tell. And I hope he writes a book at some point at some time. Gil, if you're listening. <laughs> Where's he, le- where's he located Well, he's now, now in Florida. Because we have listeners in Florida. Yeah, he started a Celebrate Recovery in St. Pete, I think. 
And yeah, he was a great inspiration for me. I will find him and email him a link to this podcast. Oh, awesome. And can you Can you tell people a little bit about Celebrate uh, Recovery for Oh, me? I'd love to. Celebrate Recovery is, there are over 35,000 of them worldwide. You go to, they're held in churches. You go to a big meeting first, and then it breaks out into small groups. And there are lots of small groups, and I went to family support. And the first time I went, I think I cried myself all the way through it for the first two or three times I went. When it would come around, I couldn't even speak. Mm -hmm. I just cried. But the more I went, the better I got at it. I stopped crying and could tell my story. (laughs) And so, you know, you can't just go one time or just two times. And I remember when I walked in the the first couple times I went, I didn't even walk in the door. I was so embarrassed Mm. because I thought people would think it was my problem. Well, it was my problem. Right. (laughs) You know, it was my son, so it was my problem. But when you go and you just keep coming back, you, you're able to get more out of it, and you're able to speak about it. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that with us. So, you know, what was that pivotal point that led Matthew to seek his recovery, and, you know, kind of how did it make you feel to hear that? Well, Matthew uh, was in his addiction for quite a while, and after I stopped enabling him, he knew he was in trouble because he was not going to be able to afford his addiction any longer. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he stole. He stole from me. He stole from his his younger sisters, but he was running out of resources. And he had made an appointment at Magnolia Ridge here in Johnson City to come on a Monday morning. And on Sunday evening, he did more heroin than he said he should have ever lived through. Wow. He overdosed. When he woke up the next morning, he still had the needle in his arm and blood was running down his arm. And his first thought was, dang, I missed my high. Mm. And he said he knew right then he was in trouble. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, thank God I'm alive. It was, dang, I missed my high. (laughs) Wow. And he said, I knew I had to go. He said I was either going to be dead or I was going to be in prison. And so his girlfriend came and picked him up, brought him up here to Magnolia Ridge. And he stayed for 30 days. And he's been well ever since. How long has he been sober now? 15 years. Wow. wow. We love that success story. We really do. Yeah. Would you like me to read his poem? <sighs> Go ahead. I'll try. All right. We can always, you know. Yeah, I probably couldn't get through it, but you can. <laughs> and this was what he wrote the night before he came to Magnolia Ridge. Okay. Let's see if I can do it. Okay. All right. The darkness. I live in total darkness because I cannot see the light. I have everything to lose and still can't put up a fight. All I do is take because I have nothing left to give. I think I'm still alive, but have forgotten how to live. Every night I fall asleep, but I never go to bed. I've woken up for 25 years, but the last four I've been dead. It's funny that they call it getting high. That's strange. I've never felt so low. I hold on so tight to something that isn't there. Why just let go? Still I live in total darkness. Is there anyone here but me? Will someone please open my eyes and show me how to see? Thank you. Hello, everyone. Like what you're hearing so far? Well, make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button right now. This podcast is made possible by listeners just like you, and we greatly appreciate your support. So let's get back to the show. Well, I don't want to spoil the rest of your book, 
because I would love for our listeners to read it for themselves and they can get it on. I can get it at Amazon.com. Okay. And it's um, called Sundown, Sun Up. Yes. And it's S-O-N. Right. You know, a lot of people have looked for it under Sundown, Sun Up <laughs> because they think it's the sun. Right. But it's my your, son. It's your son. That's yes. great. So would, would you like to share anything else about your story that we didn't get a chance to cover? I think I would like to share one God moment for me. Okay. When he came to Magnolia Ridge, I really wasn't sure that he was going to stay. He had not detoxed, of course, and I was just really scared that he would walk out the door. As a matter of fact, Jamie said when she let him off, he said, I'm not going to stay. Wow, yeah. And so she said, well, I'm not taking you back home, and your mother's not coming to get you. And so he stayed uh, that day, and he stayed every day after that. The reason why he stayed was he said he walked to this line that's drawn on the street, and the first day he was going to cross that line, and he looked up and saw a church somewhere across the street, (laughs) and he said, God, let me stay one more day, and he walked back in, and he did that every day for a week. Well, about four days after he'd been here, I called Magnolia Ridge because I wanted to make sure he was here. I didn't know if he was here, if he was on the streets somewhere, if he was dead, if he was alive. And they can't talk to you. They could not (laughs) talk to me. And I'm crying. I'm just bawling over the phone. And the lady that answers the phone says, honey, I can't tell you those answers. I can't talk to you about this. You know, there's rules and HIPAA and all this. And she said, I cannot tell you that he's here. And I said, I don't want to know anything medical I just want to know that he's there. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, honey, what is his name? And she was not going to tell me anything, but she just said, honey, what is his name? And I said, Matthew Seals. And I hear this voice that says, if that's my mom, tell her I'm okay. He was standing at her desk the very moment that I called. And for me, that was such a God blessing Mm -hmm. that I called the moment he was standing there. I love that. I really do. Thank you for letting us know that one part. I think that's such a special moment just to have that. Everything's okay. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. We so often hear stories on Impact Sigma from the viewpoint of those in recovery and have never had a guest that can directly address how addiction affects those of us that have walked through the darkness alongside our loved ones. What advice would you share with those listening right now that are feeling the same hopelessness that you felt? Don't ever give up hope. You know, I say that as long as they have breath in them, they can get well. So I think I would just encourage people to to just pray for them and just keep hoping. Try to keep in contact with them if possible. Tell them how much you love them. If they say they want to go to rehab, tell them how proud you are of them. And just don't ever give up hope. That's good advice. Absolutely. Substance use disorder is one of the most stigmatized health conditions in the world. Family members often also experience feelings of guilt, embarrassment, and shame related to their loved one's substance use. What helped you begin opening up and sharing your story in the beginning? I was totally exhausted from uh, carrying around so much pain. I couldn't sleep, and I knew I needed to tell someone or talk to someone because um, if you read in the book, my husband was not a supporter. Even though he was a physician, he knew nothing about drug addictions. Mm -hmm. And he really did not even want to talk about it. It disgusted him, like I'm sure it disgusts a lot of people. Yeah. And it was because he didn't understand 
addiction. He just thought, why can't he stop? And they don't just stop. Huge misconception. Yeah. I mean, like you just tell them, well, just stop. Just put it down. Just stop. So I carried a lot of this around for myself. And so I knew that I needed to open up to other people. Celebrate Recovery was a help for that. Mm -hmm. And then I started telling a couple of my friends, even though I had kept it a secret for so long. I finally told a couple of my friends about it. We hear the word shame used a lot these days. Um, You know, I mentioned Brene Brown, somebody I really love. And she actually states that shame derives its power from being unspeakable. So I would say it plays the lead role in why so many parents and loved ones dealing with an addict strive to hide, like, what's happening in their homes from everyone and every part of their lives. I know we lived that for a while. So can you share with our listeners what shame means to you and how you overcame it? When I found out Matthew was a drug addict, I was so ashamed of what he had become. I wasn't sure if I had played a part in it. So I felt guilty. I was embarrassed because I didn't know anybody else that had a child in an addiction. And so the shame takes over. And you don't want to tell anybody. You don't want to talk about it. You don't want people to judge your son. You don't want people to judge you for not having been a good mother. I felt guilty, and I carried around guilt because of the same reasons. I thought, had I done something? When I told a couple of my friends, though, they were so supportive, and they were like my prayer warriors. That's wonderful. They just helped me through it. And I finally realized that Matthew was going to be okay and that I was going to be okay. Addiction itself feels so isolating when you're in the middle of dealing with a suffering family member. Addiction is also often referred to as a family disease. So how important is it for caregivers to reach out for help for themselves? And when did you finally really feel ready to ask for help? As the mother of a drug addict, you cannot carry the shame, and the responsibility on your shoulders. I didn't do anything to cause it. Other parents don't do anything to cause it. Matthew assured me that I had nothing to do with it. It was his bad decisions that caused it. So if you have a a loved one or a child in addiction, you need to get help for yourself too. Mm -hmm. Because a drug addict is an addict, but it affects the whole family. It doesn't just affect the addict. It affected my my marriage. At one point, I didn't even know if my marriage would make it through it. It affected my relationship with my two younger daughters, even though I tried my hardest not to let it. But I was exhausted, and I was running out of steam. I had felt like I had nothing left to give. I felt like I wasn't being a good wife, a good mother to my other two daughters, or even a good friend to my friends. So I know at that point... I needed help, and I needed to get well myself. And so the first time I walked in to celebrate recovery, I knew that's where I needed to be. So when you have the opportunity to share with other parents about dealing with children struggling with addiction, what is your biggest piece of advice for them? My biggest piece of advice is don't enable. I think that was the hardest thing for me not to do, Mm -hmm. and but the most important thing for me to do. Absolutely. Read about addiction. Read as much as you can. Go to meetings yourself, like a Celebrate Recovery or something similar, and tell your friends so that you don't carry it around all by yourself. 
That's really good advice. I love the one about don't be an enabler. And if you don't know what that is, please look into that word and that term if you're struggling with something like this, because that's one of the biggest holdups, I guess, in their aha moment, I need some help, is that continual enabling because it just is like, it's like a succubus. It feels like you're doing good so much good but you're just hurting and hurting and hurting and I know I was definitely an enabler in our house for for sure for a while so you know yeah I get yeah, that for, for me to tell my son no yeah that I will not participate in this any longer mm-hmm. was so hard but I knew that I was participating in him killing himself yeah it's a big strong one thank you for that So stigma is the number one reason people don't seek treatment for addiction and it's the same reason while we see families live in fear for so long before they ask for help. As a parent myself, we don't want it to be our child. We don't want to have to think about our child as the addict. Um, You mentioned in your book that you kept Matthew's addiction a secret from your most trusted friends for so many years. Can you please share with our listeners why it is vital to the recovery of the whole family to speak up about what is happening and not to enable, isolate, or attack the person with a substance use disorder? If you don't speak up, nothing changes. It stays the same. You can't isolate yourself or your family. Secrets are never good. Friends will understand and will sympathize with you if they're your friends, and they will not judge. And that's important, too, that you don't want to feel judged and you don't want your child to be judged. And so I think if you do those things, it will help with your shame and um, with your guilt. And it doesn't like I said, it doesn't just affect the, the addict, it affects the whole family. Right. We definitely want that to be the message right now is just if you're a family member and you're going through this brother, sister, mom, grandmother, this is, a, this is you know, Brenda's a mom, I'm a mom, but I was a daughter, you know, and so it, it affects all of us if you're going through it. And I love the fact that we're talking about what it's like to be the family member going through it because it really... I mean, I remember feeling angry that everything was about my mom's recovery and nothing was about what happened to us while we were going through it. So this is really great. Been very enlightening. I love this. So thank you. Yeah. We want to make sure we offer ways to make an impact on stigma that our listeners can use right away. Is there anything else you would like to say or share to our listeners regarding the stigma related to addiction? I wish I could do more to make the stigma of addiction go away. I think it's because people don't really understand addiction. I didn't until I had a son in an addiction, so I, I can understand that. If we could change the, the stigma of addiction, though, we would have the power to change the way addicts are judged and treated. And in doing that, we could change the way addicts judge and treat themselves. That's wonderful. I like that. All right. Every single time we have a podcast, I have a special question I like to ask people. I think that... This is no exception. We've asked a lot of questions, but one more question, if you don't mind. If you could step into our shoes on this podcast, what would you have asked yourself that we didn't? I think I would have probably asked from a parent's point of view, what can we do to help stop addiction? Obviously, addiction's never going away. We have become a society of pills can fix everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, You just have to watch the television at night, and you'll see all these ads for pills that will fix whatever's ailing you. Mm -hmm. So I wish the public could become more informed. I wish schools would do more to educate young people on addiction. And you can't start in high school. You have to start in in middle school at the very latest. Start in middle school because 
the age that people are becoming addicted to pills is anywhere between 16 and 25. Wow, yeah. Uh, kids in middle school are becoming addicted. So I wish I could get the schools to do more to educate children on, dr- on drugs. There is a major crisis in our country with addiction, mm-hmm. and I wish the uh, government would do more to fund and help mental facilities or uh, health facilities. And provi- Agreed. <laughs> we would probably say heck yes. Yes. I think there needs to be a lot more beds available, mm-hmm. but that costs money, Yeah, you know, and so we just need to, to work on that. And, and parents need to lead by example. You know, we need to talk to our kids too and need, let them, need to let them know that a pill doesn't fix everything. That's great advice. I love that. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. Sure. All right. Today we have truly enjoyed this time with you, Brenda, and it's been an honor just to share this space with you and um, discuss such an important topic. Um, so thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much. For our listeners, we really hope you enjoyed this episode of Impact Stigma, and thank you so much for joining us. We know without all of you, we wouldn't be here. So thank you for being such incredibly supportive fans. Thank you guys for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. It always helps out. It absolutely does. And also, don't forget to go make an impact. Stigma can make mental health problems worse and even stop a person from getting the help they need. Untreated mental illness places an enormous economic and emotional burden on our communities. Economic burden alone is in the billions, and that directly affects all of us. We all play a crucial role in creating a mentally healthy community, one that is inclusive, rejects discrimination, and supports recovery. For us at Impact Stigma, this is way more than just a podcast. It is about igniting our communities, sharing our stories, and working together with listeners like you. We invite you to find out more about Impact Stigma on our website at impactstigma.com. One way you can make an impact right now is by sharing our podcast with your friends and family because you never know when something we talk about might be the reason someone you love asks for help. Mental illness is not a personal failure. We can't do this without you. So if you feel inspired to get involved, first, subscribe to this podcast. Then go visit our website at impactstigma.com. Watch the video and read about how you can become an impact maker. Thank you for listening to Impact Stigma. You're so glad you chose us. We want to thank our guests again for sharing your impactful story and doing your part to impact stigma. Join us next time as we enjoy some laughs and hear impactful stories. Until then, this work needs you. So go be an impact maker. Thank you and be blessed.